So good to be with you, brothers and sisters. And the pastoral prayers in this church are amazing. I can remember that just hearing Bill pray, and, and that is something that we take for granted. That's so sweet. As we approach our text in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25 today, I'm gonna lay some some groundwork introducing the text. This is a passage that comes in the flow of thought of the Hebrews. It, It just is remarkable. This book has always been one of my favorites, but now that I'm working in the Muslim world, so many things from the Eastern mindset pop out. Missiologists classify cultures into three categories. Usually they're shame and guilt, or shame and honor and shame. So honor is the highest virtue. Shame is the big problem that everybody's trying to deal with. And in that culture, oftentimes it's having to do with who belongs and who doesn't. What is your status? What is your standing? There's oftentimes, there's rituals and and cleanliness is really important. Other cultures are fear and power driven. Those are more generally animistic cultures where you have a a leader that, that rules with power, whether that's, you know, the tribalism we see in all the warlords demonstrating their power, or maybe it's, um, when you have, even, even in the gangs, I think, in modern day US gang warfare, it's, it's, a, it's a show of power and you rule by fear. But there's also innocent guilt cultures. America has traditionally fallen into this category where we see everything in right and wrong, we talk about the rule of law, And that's really important to us. We have that on the background of our British legal system, on the backdrop of the Greek and Roman ideas of, of what it means to be a good citizen and what's right and what's wrong. And so you have these different forms of culture and they gravitate towards these different solutions to our problem. But what the author of Hebrews masterfully weaves in all three of these themes. It's talking about the superiority of Christ and his position. You see, in an honor-shame culture, you have ascribed honor, that's honor given as a position, or who you belong to, okay? Who you know, who's your daddy? Who are you connected with? And if you're gonna do anything in that part of the world, you need to have those contacts, that social network to get anything done. You also have achieved honor, that's through what you do, what you accomplish. That's more what we, how we arrive with honor. In the fear and power, that's, that's more on that what you do, what you, what you accomplish, showing that force. In our passage, Jesus is the superior one. He's the one with supreme honor. He's the one that has broken the power of sin and death through his death and resurrection. 
but he's also the one that lays down the law and he cleanses us from our sin and makes us right so we are declared innocent in the sight of a holy God. So you have all three of these strands in the author of Hebrews is writing about. How Jesus is our prophet telling what's right and wrong. He's our priest giving us access to God. He's our king ruling with power and authority. These things all come together. At the, the, there's a big theological treatise, but the beginning is in chapter two. It says, Hebrews 2 says, in putting everything under mankind, he left nothing that is sub, not subject to him. Yet at present time, we do not see everything subject to him. Can I hear an amen? So basically, we were made to have dominion. We were made to rule. We were given that position of honor. We were supposed to be his representatives and make culture to glorify him. We were supposed to declare his character and demonstrate that. And all three of those things were shattered. The Hebrews were, at this point, facing persecution. They were scattered. The temple was either destroyed or about to be destroyed. And their, their whole framework was rocked. It says that they had had their property confiscated. They'd come alongside of people that were persecuted. In an honor-shame culture, if you have suffering, that means you did something wrong. And yet in this context, God gives us great comfort. It says, at this present time, we do not see everything subject to him, but we do see Jesus. We see Jesus. That's my hope this morning as, as we look at the, the pain and the struggles that we go through, that we would not get focused on those circumstances, but that we would see Jesus. And that in seeing him, he would transform us by the power of his word. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet uh, together as, some, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would use this word to, to transform us, to change us, to make us more like Jesus. And we stop and we give you thanks. We just praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a plethora of superhero movies. It's almost too much. It's like every 
Every time you turn around, there's another superhero movie. That's a genre that I really enjoy, but it's, it's almost becoming tedious. You just have bigger and bigger superheroes. And, and, and it's just like so many of them, and it's, uh, the Marvel universe is just chaos. So what makes a good superhero? I long for the days of the old, you know, Christopher Reeves Superman. You know, he's somebody that's powerful, he's strong, and yet he's somebody I can identify with. Do you remember the scene in Superman when all the boys in his high school are playing football and he's the water boy? And they're just kind of making fun of him and they leave and they go out to the diner and leave him to clean up all the mess. And you see a little bit of Superman's humanity there where he's just longing to be seen and known and to demonstrate that power, but he feels left out. And he picks up that ball and he kicks it into space. Or do you remember the old Spider-Man? You know, he's always losing his job. He can't get the girl. He doesn't have the words to say. He's powerful. And yet, he's like us. In the book of Hebrews, starting in chapter two and three and going and picking up again in chapter 12, there's a Greek word called archikon, and it's translated different ways. It's hard to translate into English. Part of it is originator. It says he's the author and perfecter of our faith. It's like the forefather, the one who's gone before, the pioneer. We talks about the trail blazer. Somebody who, you know, Daniel Boone would be that archicon that blazed the trail for other settlers. Also, we see that he's a champion. That word can be used as champion. You think of David and Goliath and how David was the champion of Israel and he beat Goliath and that he was representing the whole people of God. Well, the Hebrew says that Jesus is our hero. He is our champion, he is our forefather, he's the author and perfecter of our faith. And I think he brings out that perfect balance of a superhero. He is powerful, he is the almighty God, and yet he became man so that he could empathize with us and our weakness. When working in the Muslim world, they have that idea of God as powerful. God is almighty. He, they have no problem with the sovereignty of God. God can do whatever he wants and he rules over all things. And it's almost like, a, well, you know, it's gonna work out as it's gonna work out because he has it ordained. We believe in a sovereign God. He is all powerful and he can do whatever he wants. He is mighty to save. And yet he is a personal God. He is a God who came near to us so that we can know him, so that we can love him. So the first thing I want you to see in our passage in Isaiah chapter 10, in verses 19 to 22, 
that he, it's his presence that transforms us. It's his closeness. He has come near. Look at the text. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is an invitation to draw near to God. Do you realize that the majority of Muslims don't even speak Arabic? You see, they they go through prayers and they they pray five times a day and they go to the mosque and everything is in Arabic because, but a lot of the Muslims come from different, I mean, Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world, has more Muslims than any other country. And unless you've studied at a madras, they don't know Arabic. It's not like us, that we have the privilege of coming into the presence of God and he knows us and he, we know him. We know him as a person, not just the force out there. He has come near and he's drawn us to himself through the work of Jesus Christ. He's taken that separation away. You remember I said that in honor-shame cultures, it's who you know that gets things done. Back a couple years ago, a team here from Lawndale came to Costa Rica and worked in one of the poor fishing villages. And one of the things that stuck out to a man that became a Christian through those short-term trips, he was just a poor day laborer that would just cut in the, in the rainforest and he would cut trees. And he came to faith And when he was giving his testimony, he was actually in elder training, and he was giving his testimony and he said, the thing I couldn't understand was why these doctors and a lawyer would come do this menial labor. You see, Costa Rica's in that spectrum of an honor-shame culture. And the fact that they would humble themselves and they would value me enough to want to come and be with me. And it spoke to, it gave him a new sense of dignity. Brothers and sisters, it's not these mission trips, it's not the work that we're doing. I mean, they can actually do it most times. We're building a church. They can do it better than we can oftentimes but it's that presence of humbling ourselves and being with them and saying, I value you enough to spend time with you and to get to know you, to give myself to you. We are being incarnational and we are drawing near and giving them an opportunity to know us. You see, it's been a while since I've been preaching. It's actually, I told the first service that this is the first time I've preached in a while and I miss it. But in some ways, it's been really refreshing. For 20 years, I was the one that was doing the worship, leading the worship, I was preaching, and now I 
more often than not, I get to sit and, and hear the word and receive the word. And one of the just little differences that this break has given me is that I fell into a pattern of thinking worship was something I did for God. I come and I do my service for his glory. But that's not what the text says. You see, he tore the curtain from top to bottom. He shed his blood to make a way for us so that we could draw near. It's his presence that he's after. It's his gifts. He, you come to worship to be fed. You come to worship because he wants to give himself to you. Brothers and sisters, that will transform the way you approach him. He wants you. And he's giving him you himself. Oftentimes when we're facing addictions, whether it's among the workers, among the, the different people that we're working with, you see this cycle of addiction where shame keeps us stuck in the, in the sin pattern. The problem is not our desires. It's trying to fill those desires in inappropriate ways. Oftentimes, I mean, let's take video games for, you know, we are called to have dominion, right? God has called us to have dominion, and, and this is a good substitute for dominion. You see, I get to kill the bad guys. I get to make a world. I get to, you know, in some ways, it's a, it's a picture of having dominion. That's what makes video games so attractive. And then you add in multiplayer games, and then you're having community. You see, we're, we're having that sense of, I have a purpose and I have connection. But then sometimes that can become a coping strategy. And I'm not picking on video games. I mean, it could be so many different things we turn to. You know, whether it's alcohol or even doing ministry. You see, I feel guilty, I feel ashamed, I feel like I'm not enough, and so I turn to this to give me value, but then it makes me feel bad because it's, it's elusive. You know, Jeremiah calls it a broken cistern that doesn't hold water, and, and so I feel bad because I'm turning to this and it's not fulfilling me, and so I feel even worse about myself and more shame, and so then I'm trying to cover over those feelings of shame and go back to my addiction. That tends to alienate us, it isolates us, it separates us, and yet Jesus is saying, I've come to bridge that gap. I have given you a new identity as a people of God. He's given you a new relationship. You are now family. You see, if your identity is tied to being, knowing an important person, you know Jesus. You have access to the throne room of God. Like that man in Costa Rica, it's like, wow, I must be something if he cared enough to come be friends with me. I remember Gracie, once in Kansas when I was a pastor there, 
Selena Gomez came to the Kansas State Fair. And she loved Selena Gomez at that time. That was one of her heroes. And it's like, can you believe it? I got to say hi to Selena Gomez. And that was a, a source of identity, right? I, know, I, got to, I got to see her. I got to touch her. I got to shake her hand. I got her autograph. We have access to the very King of kings and Lord of lords. And he calls us to come. We not only come near and he's dealt with our shame by giving us his honor, by giving us his presence, by calling us in. That's a great opportunity. We prayed, I said that you guys have great pastoral prayers here. A story is told about a man that was in the Civil War and all his brothers died and he was really nervous because his mom, he was, was kind of like saving Private Ryan. He's the last brother left. And who's gonna take care of his mom? And harvest is coming. And so he petitions to be released to go back and take care of his mom. And he keeps getting turned down. And he's stationed not far from Washington, D.C. And, and so he goes, and he goes up to the doors of the White House. And he's gonna just take it to the top. And he and he comes and the, and the guards are saying, what are you doing? You can't come in here. And he's turned away. And so he's just sitting there on a bench and he's crying. And this little boy comes and says, what's the matter, mister? And he tells him his story. He said, oh, that's all right, come on. And he takes the man by hand and he leads him straight into the White House. That was Todd Lincoln. The soldiers let him in. And he got to make an appeal to President Lincoln. And President Lincoln allowed him to go back home. We have access to the throne room of God and he's given us that access to know him, to make requests because we have a relationship with his son. That should transform us. Spend some time this week delighting in that position you have and use that position to bless others. We're not only transformed by the presence of God, but by his promises. You see, oftentimes when we face hardships, we've prayed this morning, so many of us are facing hardships. Our family you know, is facing hardships with Gracie's illness, with just lots of difficulties. Our nation is facing a ton of difficulties right now. Politically, you know, just disunity everywhere. There's sickness. There's so many things that that would cause us to, to focus on our problems and not on our Savior. When we came back from Costa Rica and we, through a series of disappointments, I felt like Elijah. And Elijah, if you remember, he, he left a, you know, that spiritual high of being on the mountain and seeing God call down that fire. And the next chapter, you see him throwing himself under a bush. And he's like, God, take my life. And he says, I'm the only one left. I feel so alone. I'm so alienated and the queen wants to kill me. I felt depressed like that. And actually God used that text 
And he, he spoke to me and he said, Jeff, I'm God. I am your God. Hold on to me. You're not in control, but I am. And I will be faithful. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You see, we can, cling, we can cling to God's promises. We can hold on. We can know God is faithful and he will do what he says he will do. He has the power. Do you trust that God really has the power to change your circumstances? Do you trust that he cares for you even if he chooses not to change the circumstances? He is faithful. Cling to those promises. He's not only powerful, but he is good. He is good and he is working whatever this is out for your good and for his glory. As we face Thanksgiving this week, I want you to rest on God's promises. If you look at that uh, hymn we first sang, if you notice, the first two scenes is talking about the good things God's done now, the things he's given us. And the second two stanzas was looking to the future, our future hope, our future provision. Oftentimes when we work with trauma uh, victims, we get them to recount with gratitude what, were their, what, what sustained them in the past and what supports do they have to, to keep them going in the future? And that's what we have with Jesus, recounting, Jesus, you did this for me. You are faithful. Thank you. And what's cool is to get into these, uh, when I was in Bangladesh and there was just this really sad situation with the, the Rohingya, and they were just grieving, and I told a story in Sunday school of a man who's, child was thrown into the fire and there was another boy who had a bullet wound through his hand and he had seen his whole family killed and he was the only one left. And that's just, just the trauma that these people have faced and the horrendous things. And yet you see that God shows up and works through his people. God shows up and that's the last thing that transforms us is that we are transformed by the people of God surrounding us in our weakness, surrounding us in our trial. Our text says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, he has put us in a body He's put us in a family. He's given us a community. And oftentimes it's that community of giving thanks together, having that long memory of what God has done in the past. That's what we declare when we look, when we do communion. But that's what you declare when you're celebrating Thanksgiving. God has been faithful in the past and he will continue because we're part of his family. Remember whose you are. He transforms us. 
in here, the, the author of Hebrews just does a great job. I talked about that strength and the empathy. And if you look throughout the Hebrews, it has some of the most incredible promises, comforts, but some of the most severe challenges. You know, you think of him saying there's an anchor. You know, he's an anchor that's gone up into the heavens and he's, he's anchored us to the holy of holies. And not only that, we see that he's brought us near. And yet he says, don't drift away. When we were in Costa Rica, that fishing village, that was a metaphor. They just, they love that metaphor because they are mostly fishermen and they, they said, if you're not anchored, you're going. I mean, they had 15 foot swells and you are just gone. We can count on those promises. And yet, that, that comfort and challenge, I, I just encourage you guys to have that balance of comfort and challenge as you work through your, your holiness together. Heather came to Christ through um, an FCA leader in her high school. And his name was Scott Sauls. Some of you might have heard of him. He's now a a pastor in Nashville, but it, it, he was an older student at her high school in, in Atlanta. And Scott's been kind of like a hero for us. He's kind of a trailblazer. So he discipled Heather. And then when we were at Covenant College and Heather and I met, he actually was the one that encouraged us to go to Covenant Seminary. And he was there at Covenant Seminary before us and paving the way for us. And then Scott ended up being ordained in the presbytery where I got ordained. And it's just cool to see how God has kind of led us through Scott's ministry. Scott says, when we grant each other the spirit blend of grace and truth, of love and law, come as you are, and I love you too much to let you stay as you are. You get it? That's the same comfort and challenge of Hebrews. Come as you are, you're accepted. This is a safe place. You can be honest with your struggles. You are cleansed. You don't have anything to prove. You don't have anything to defend. Brothers and sisters, we need to come into worship and be honest with each other. But we also can challenge one another. I love you too much to let you stay as you are. This is the meaning of community. And God transforms us through the people of God. I don't know who your hero is. Many of you, I just thank you so much for just your influence on my life as we came and as we joined this church. Gracie was baptized here as my parents have been here and just you all have been such a blessing. But the way you cared for my grandmother, Mary Alice, was one of the, it's, it was one of the icing on the cake. Just how you came alongside of her and encouraged her. And I know, knowing her, she probably encouraged you. But she's one of my heroes. She's one of my heroes. I remember, I don't know if you all know this, but her father committed suicide and her brother. And so she just had a heart for people that were in this desperation. And, and I remember for 20 years in Las Vegas, almost every weekend, she would be on the phone and she was on a hotline for people that wanted to commit suicide. And she probably has no idea I was listening in. But I would be in the other room and I would listen to her giving hope. 
being present, communicating that you're gonna make it through this and pointing them to Jesus Christ. Your circumstances look bad, but look to Jesus. That was one of the influences. Now that I'm a counselor, I see that it was that influence of my grandmother. At her funeral, I actually preached from Hebrews chapter 12. And it talks about in 11, those heroes of the faith who have gone before. And now Jesus is that trailblazer and he fixes our eyes on him. And at the end of Hebrews, it says, I will never leave you. And I remembered that that was one of the things my grandmother also taught backyard Bible clubs. And she said, Jeffrey, remember, I will never leave you. That's the comfort that we have, that Jesus has us in his grasp. He's given us his presence. He's given us his promise. He's given us his people to hold us accountable and encourage us and spur us on. That's the hope that we have as we face adversity.